In the last conference, we learned that we act in persona Christi. If then we are the ambassadors of Christ, what is the fundamental virtue to be practiced? May an ambassador ever speak in his own word? Or must he follow the word and the authority of the one who sent him? If then we are the ambassadors of Christ, we obey. Obedience is not a very popular virtue today. Of the three evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience, chastity and obedience seem to be out. Love of poverty seems to be in. Obedience refers to authority. Sin refers to conduct. Actually, the great sin of the human race is rebellion. We are rebels against God. Let my upright finger stand for the will of God, and my horizontal finger stand for my will. As soon as I put the horizontal finger against the vertical, I have physically a cross. Psychologically, I have a complex. A neurosis or a psychosis. And both sin and rebellion demand some kind of not only forgiveness, but also expiation. Suppose you had the authority to command me, and you said to me, take three steps to your right. I, wanting to be me, do my thing, take three steps to my left. When I am over there, I say to you, will you forgive me? You say, yes, I forgive. But before I can start acting normally, I have to take three steps backwards. Where I put my foot down in egotism, I now have to put it down in humiliation. That's the expiation. And then only can I begin to obey. So there has to be some way of overcoming obedience and rebellion. Now the one who overcomes this rebellion must be both God and man. He has to be man, otherwise he could not act in our name. If, for example, you are arrested for speeding, I cannot go into the court and say, well, I will take over for him. The judge will say, you have nothing to do with this case. So, he who comes to atone for rebellion must be man to act in our name. He must also be God 
in order that his actions will have infinite value. And he can redeem us. So God takes disobedience rather seriously. The punishment was rather severe in the Old Testament. For example, the disobedience of Miriam, the sister of Moses, who thought in our modern language that she had a right to be a priestess, and she was struck with leprosy. Koran, Dathan, and Abiron were jealous of the powers of priesthood and assumed it, and they were swallowed up in the earth. Now, how is disobedience overcome? In the epistle to the Hebrews, this is the answer to that mystery. The epistle to the Hebrews states that though he was God, though he was God, he overcame our disobedience by obedience. He learned it in the school of suffering. and once perfected, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Son though he was, he learned obedience. You see, as the Son of God, he could not learn obedience, because he was equal to God. But when God became man, he then was capable of learning obedience existentially, experimentally, not the way that we learn obedience. We learned obedience by finding the consequences of disobedience. Most of us are old enough to belong to a generation that believed in In spanking, which was the way that parents gave us a pat on the back that was hard enough and low enough in order to make us learn who was the master of the house. But we also were burnt by matches. We learned obedience by suffering, the consequences of disobedience. Now, our Lord learned obedience in the school of suffering by discovering how much it cost to obey the Father's will. For example, the ridicule that he received, the opposition of men, politics, religion itself, each affirming its own will and causing him suffering. So let us try to see what was the role of the Father as the Son learned obedience. And then let us see what was the role of the Son as he learned obedience. First of all, the role of the Father. 
We have not much in our theology about this. We often use the text. We learn that the Father gave his Son. He so loved the world that he sent his Son. Now think of any earthly father whose own son, for example, was injured by a criminal, offering his son in expiation for that criminal. There's probably no earthly father in the world who would ever do that. Yet the heavenly father gave his son. What did it cost him? In the fourth century, there was the heresy that was known as patripassianism, that the father suffered. Now, that, of course, is not true in the sense that he suffered as we suffered. But did Abraham have some kind of suffering that intimated the suffering of the heavenly father in sacrificing his son? While the son was away, did the heavenly father feel, in quotes, like the father of the prodigal son? There is a Japanese theologian by the name of Katamuri, who a few years ago wrote a book entitled The Pain of God, in which he tried to bring out the sufferings, in quotes, of the Heavenly Father in giving His Son. For example, in Jeremiah, my bowels are moved. Father, the Father was disturbed by the sin of the world. In any case, while we cannot quite divine what the Heavenly Father endured, as it were, He gave up something in our language. So the father had a role. Maybe we can compare it to a father bringing a son to a dentist. The son has a bad tooth that is infected. That bad tooth causes a toxic condition in the son's organism. The father takes the son to the dentist. The dentist said, this infection is in the tooth, but considerable pain is going to be given to your son. I may have to remove the tooth. I certainly will have to drill it. And then I shall have to remove that toxic condition. Now, our human race had a point of infection, our first parents. That sin created a toxic condition in our human race. When the drill is applied by the dentist, does the father say, do not do that? That hurts my son. Or will the father deliberately send his son to pain? 
Is there not a cross in the very heart of God? Now we come to the text that he learned obedience by what he suffered and became the captain of our salvation. The Heavenly Father certainly did nothing for the Son. Just think of how distant the Heavenly Father seems to be when his son is born into this world. Yes, the Heavenly Father manipulates the senses of Caesar Augustus, that everyone be enrolled. But why does his eternal son have to be born in a barn? Why doesn't the Father care for the Son? Why doesn't the Father do something when the Son is obliged to flee into Egypt? And then subjects him to to Marion, his foster father, for thirty years, where he learns obedience. The Heavenly Father does nothing, for example, to feed him. Here he is fasting forty days and forty nights. Does not the Heavenly Father look down on that situation? Has he no concern for the hungry son? Have you no concern for hungry people? Then this succession of injustices, religious courts, civil courts, condemning innocents to death, and finally on the cross, we're almost impelled as we watch the sufferings of his divine Son on the cross we're almost impelled to cry out, Heavenly Father, do something! Why did he do nothing? He allowed the Son to live in the human situation. In the circumstances of life as they were revealed, and manifested historically and experimentally as he lived, so that we too might learn that we work out our salvation in the human situation as we are. But in the Epistle to the Hebrews, we read also that he suffered, learned obedience, in order that he might become the captain of our salvation. The Greek word that is used is archegos. It's used four times in the New Testament. He's captain. He's leader. He's the Joshua. He's the one who first went over the top. He was the one who had to break through 
as people in the whole world were asking if there's a God in heaven, why is there suffering? Does God know anything about pain? Was God ever hungry? Was God ever homeless? Does God know anything about a leper? Did he ever look like one? Yes, God does. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. So this great divine breakthrough was the Heavenly Father in his goodness sending the Son, and the Son not altering his human situation ever to help himself just to become our captain. Now, if we are acting in persona Christi, what are the two practical consequences of obedience. What does obedience do for us? Obedience gives us faith. How does the scientist learn the laws of nature? Does he command nature? Or does the scientist sit passively and read the book of nature? Are we reacting against Christ and his church? Or are we accepting its authority? Faith comes from that kind of submission. Remember that when our blessed Lord was born, Herod consulted the scribes, the theologians, and he said to the scribes, Where is Christ to be born? The theologians knew their scripture. They said he is to be born in Bethlehem. Did they go? There was not a single scribe at the crib. Not a one. But they knew. Believe me, our faith today can be a kind of a creedal ascent. Instead of a living act of the will, conscious of the fact that we are submitting to Christ, as Christ submitted to the Heavenly Father. Now, Scripture tells us how very much faith is related to obedience. Notice, too, that at the crib, only two classes of people found their way to Christ when he came to this earth. The very simple and the very learned. 
The shepherds who knew that they knew nothing. The wise men who knew that they did not know everything. Never the man with one book. Never the man who thought that he knew. So St. Paul, in writing to the Philippians from prison, said, I count everything sheer loss, because all is far outweighed by the gain of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake, in fact, I did lose everything. I count it so much dung for the sake of gaining Christ and finding myself incorporate in him with no righteousness of my own, no legal rectitude, but the righteousness which comes from faith in Christ given by God in response to faith. Faith comes from obedience. And Christ is speaking through his body, the church, just as much as he spoke from his physical body on earth. And the basic mark of the priesthood is obedience. We may learn it by what we suffer, as he did. But this is primary in the man who acts in persona Christi. Then the second effect of obedience is that it gives us an increase of the Holy Spirit. And this seems to be particularly important today. Because there can be a seeming love and devotion and obedience to the Holy Spirit, which is not true obedience always, because it is separated from the church. Notice that our blessed Lord received the Spirit for his public life only after thirty years of obedience. And furthermore, the Spirit could not come until he was glorified, which meant crucified, risen. So St. Paul tells us that he was obedient even unto the death of the cross. And then came the Holy Spirit. We receive the increase of the Holy Spirit principally through obedience. Obedience to Christ and the church, they're one and the same. And I wonder, my dear fathers, if today there is not growing up in the church an affirmation of our own wills. 
We are allowed now throughout the world to pretty much determine where we will work, where we will go. I want this parish. I want that work. I want to be sent to this university. I prefer this task. How very often in life, when we get our own will, we hate it. What has happened to mission? The Father sent the Son. Sent the Son. The Son sent the Apostles. The Apostles used to send us through the bishops. We now sometimes insist on sending ourselves. Something spiritual is surrendered in this affirmation of our own will. And we may be sent to a place certainly where we do not will to go. I know I had it in my own life. To five years of graduate work in universities, graduate work after my ordination. I was sent to one of the poorest parishes in the diocese. Now it's closed, it's so poor. Suppose I followed public opinion and said with the people, why do you send someone to Europe and spend five years educating him and then send him to a place like that, as they say? But thank heavens it was the will of God. And I would not be here now talking to you priests if I said I wanted to go to the university and teach. After I'd been in this parish a year, the bishop sent for me and said, I am sending you to the university. I promised three years ago that I would send you. I said, why didn't you let me go when I came back from Europe? He said, I just wanted to find out whether or not you would obey. Now be a good boy, run along. And I've been running ever since.